Bonjour tout le monde! I bet my high school French teacher, Mademoiselle Dylan, is happy I remember how to say that in French. Welcome to another edition of the Hack Your Gut podcast. I am your host, Dave Mayo. Today we have a lot in store for you. I'm going to discuss why Vermont, the state of Vermont, is crushing it with regard to COVID-19. There's actually a lot of science behind why they're doing so well. I'm also going to discuss a group on Facebook that's compiling data for people with post-viral syndrome from COVID-19 and compiling this data to kind of get a better understanding of what's going on with these people because it is a significant number of people. I'm going to discuss kind of some of the oddness that I see with people and their attitudes towards COVID-19. And then I'm going to talk about my self-care program for the next month, what I'm going to be measuring to make sure that I'm getting progress, what I'm going to be doing, and some of the tips and tricks that I generally use to help people make better lifestyle decisions. So without further ado, let's begin with the show. So folks, I'd like to begin by discussing COVID-19 and why the state of Vermont is crushing it. Before I jump into that, I just want to say that I don't believe that I've ever seen anything in my entire life like this. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, let's face it, we have people on both sides of this kind of, you know, pushing odd narratives, some saying that it's nothing, other people saying that's the worst thing that's ever happened. Of course, as things typically are, it's somewhere in the middle. But if I'm being honest, I believe we're probably more towards the side that this is pretty significant and you should be concerned about this. Uh, One of the things that has been really frustrating to me is seeing people who are relatively intelligent and logical make completely illogical claims about what's going on with coronavirus. Uh, One of the big ones is that the reason we're seeing more uh, we're seeing more cases is because we're testing more, which as with all relatively illogical stances actually does make sense. Of course, if you test more people, of course, you're going to see more positive cases. However, we don't simply just have the data on positive cases. We have what is called a positivity percentage or a, a rating in terms of how many people in a given population are testing positive kind of based on the total number of people who are being tested. So yes, while testing will reveal more cases, what we really want to see is what happens when we test a specific population and what's happening, what percentage of the people being tested there are testing positive. Now, of course, when you do more tests in an area, you're going to have more positive cases. It makes complete sense because you wouldn't test in an area where there are not a lot of positive cases. But when we look at the positivity rate, in other words, you know, say you give 100,000 tests in an area, what percentage of those tests are positive? There are some pretty shocking differences that are really not all that difficult to kind of differentiate why they're happening. Um, for example, just by me looking at the data, it is crystal clear to me that even if we do not kind of separate the United States and look at us with the rest of the world, obviously places like China and Japan and these other areas, Vietnam, can lock down and force you to stay quarantined and force you to wear a mask. But even within the United States, we see some pretty stark differences in states based on the state that they're in and kind of their attitudes towards the coronavirus. And what we find is that the positivity rate is highest in states that opened early 
or they didn't really have any restrictions and they have lower mask compliances. So to kind of get an idea of, of what I'm saying with that, let's just kind of take a look at the positivity uh, rating of certain states as of today, July 21st. We'll begin with the bad numbers. Uh, we'll start with Arizona is a 23.4% positive rate. Nevada is 19.4. Idaho is 19.1. Florida is 18.9. Alabama is 18. South Carolina is 16.3. Mississippi is 15.5. Texas is 15.3. And Georgia is 15.1. Now, you may not be able to figure out, you know, are these good or these bad? So let's just kind of take a look at the kind of the top of the chart. Now, ideally, we do not want to see these numbers over 5%. So we'll look at the states that are under 5%. We have Delaware, 4.7. Minnesota, 4.4. Rhode Island, 4. Montana, 3.8. New Mexico, 3.8. West Virginia, 3.3. Alaska, 3. And I'm just going to skip some states because there's a lot of states in this area. We have Massachusetts at 2.3, Washington, D.C. at 2, New Hampshire at 1.8, Hawaii at 1.5, where I currently live, New Jersey at 1.4, New York at 1.2, Maine at 1, Vermont at 0.8, and Connecticut at 0.8. So Vermont and Connecticut are crushing it. So some of you may have kind of seen Dr. Fauci say, uh, you know, New York is really doing very well. And then of course you kind of have the people who think this is all a hoax saying like, how can you use New York as an example of what was done right when so many people died and they had so many cases? Well, yeah, they were kind of shocked just like we in New Jersey were completely shocked at the beginning when this coronavirus hit because we didn't know what it was, what was going on. And New York definitely made some missteps, but they're currently crushing it being the hardest hit to now being in the top four in terms of lowest positivity. But what I really want to focus on today is the state of Vermont. Now, truth be told, I've seen that Vermont, which is my home state where I was born and spent the first 19 years of my life, I saw that they had a very good positivity rate. My first inclination was, well, they have a population of half of a million people, which is actually right around what my county that I live in now has. So of course it makes sense that, you know, they have a very low positivity rate, but the reasoning behind this, yes, certainly, you know, a lower number of people and a lower population density means that they're going to have less spread. But that's kind of what we're saying is there's less spread. Positivity is dictating spread and whether we're getting community transmission. Now, Vermont, yes, the population is low, which certainly knocks down uh, population density. But this low population also helps them in other ways as well. For one, there are plenty of tests for rapid turnaround. Before we went there, uh, as the state, our county had a specific number of cases, uh, I believe it was around 700, uh, 700 cases or 600 cases per 100,000 residents, which meant we had to quarantine for two weeks before we came up, which we did. Uh, I wanted to go get a test, a PCR test to make sure, you know, hey, I want to make sure I'm not going up to the state of Vermont spreading this. So I called to set up the test and the rules with Vermont were that if you have it, you either had to quarantine for two weeks or you quarantine for a week and have a negative test within 72 hours of entering Vermont. The problem is if when I scheduled my appointment, I asked them what the turnaround was and they said the turnaround is eight days, which is absolutely horrible. When I got to Vermont, 
I called and inquired uh, with the, the Department of Health and they said, oh, we'll have the test results in one or two days. So having this rapid turnaround is really important for contact tracing and quarantining people. People are not going to quarantine if it takes eight days to get results. You know, telling them within one or two days, you're really going to more likely get buy-in and you're going to get more compliance. So, you know, here, while there is a low population, low population actually also lends other variables that are important. Another thing I noticed was the science communication was so much better in Vermont than I'd seen here in New Jersey. I'm guessing it's because, again, a small population, the people who are communicating science just have a better way of relating to the individuals that they're communicating with. They have a better way of explaining things that people understand and just communicating the science well overall. One thing I, I can say that this really shines a light on for, for our entire government is that People in the higher echelons of government that are, you know, part of, you know, science like the CDC, they just have no real good way of communicating at a level that most people can understand or that people even really care about. So I found that the people they had communicating to, to them on the news were just so much more effective than I've seen here in New Jersey and even nationally. And they discussed contact tracing, why it's important, why you should do it, how it helps you, what we can do to help you. Part of it is to give you the tools you need so that you feel better and so that you don't get sick. And if you get sicker, you know when to go to the hospital. So they discussed contact tracing a lot uh, while I was up in Vermont. There was tons of discussion on it on the news and why it was important and how it's helping them keep their uh, levels, their positivity rate very, very low. Another thing that I was extremely surprised about was that businesses seem to really care about the rest of the population. Now, I'm going to preface this uh, by mentioning that my wife is a member of a, a servers group, meaning people who are restaurant servers, waitresses, waiters, bartenders, et cetera, et cetera. And when this all kind of started happening, and then some of these states like Texas, uh, Georgia, and Arizona opened up early, she said there were a handful of waiters and waitresses saying, you know, I tested positive and I went and told my boss and my boss told me to, you know, not tell anybody about it. Just don't come into work. Don't tell any of your employees and don't tell the Department of Health. And this has actually accelerated quite a bit. She told me when this first was happening, she'd see, you know, two or three a day and she'd see dozens a day um, within the last month of people going in and reporting that their boss told them not to say that they were positive for uh, coronavirus and to not tell any of the other employees. Now, when I was up in Vermont, I was visiting the local businesses. It's, it's so beautiful up there and they're very good. Uh, pe most people wore their masks. Some, you, you know, there was no mandate. So some people were going into gas stations and not wearing them, but the vast majority of people were. When you went to a restaurant, the restaurants had very strict rules. You wear your mask so you get your table, you take your mask off while you're at your table, your server's wearing a mask. Our server at um, a place called Foam, Foam, Foam Brewing, which is a, a beautiful little uh, uh, microbrewery on uh, the waterfront, he was excellent, never came within six feet of any of us. He would have us hand him the glasses. He would never reach over us. He, he was wonderful. But what we found out was I went there twice. On the Friday before we came back, which was last Friday, they had found out that a staff member had been in contact with somebody who tested positive. So they just shut down. Meanwhile, this staff member had not tested positive. And as it turns out, he tested negative. Additionally, there's another place up there called Zero Gravity. Both the way things work in Vermont, 
there's typically a restaurant associated with the brewery and another place called zero gravity uh, had a the same situation. Someone was exposed. I haven't followed up on them, but both establishments closed down before they even tested the individual to protect their patrons. And so I think another thing that we get from this smaller population up in Vermont is overall, I just think the state of Vermont, the government, its citizens, and its businesses care more about one another. And there's a sense of community. There's not a, you know, like, oh, well, it doesn't really affect me. So I don't really care about it. So I was just kind of absolutely floored about how well that they were kind of controlling the virus, keeping the positivity rate very low, even though people weren't, you know, not everybody at a gas station was wearing a mask. Some people walking around town were wearing masks and uh, they recommended that you do that when you're walking around town and certain towns actually required it. Uh, We were in Stowe for a while and Stowe said uh, anytime you're within any sort of close contact with another person, another citizen or, you know, vacationer like myself, you are to be wearing a mask. So I, I just think Vermont has going for it just a much greater sense of community and just a very logical approach to this condition as well as an attitude of I'm going to protect my fellow citizens that you're just simply not seeing in other states. And, you know, to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty proud of my state. And again, the science communication I thought was huge. I think that's the one thing where here in New Jersey and nationally, they do not have people communicating science in, in, in a very effective way. Um, I don't think authoritarianism works when you're talking about science. I think you want to include people in the discussion, get their questions and kind of reflect back on them about what, you know, how what they think kind of fits into the bigger picture. So, you know, very happy for the state of Vermont, very happy for my state of New Jersey. I mean, we're still uh, crushing it. I think we're in uh, fourth place in terms of positivity rate. So let's hope, you know, all these other states, you know, a lot of them, Florida, I believe, and Arizona are both seeing a, a positive turn, not meaning more positive tests, but they're, you know, seeing fewer hospitalizations. So let's, let's hope that, you know, these people are okay and that we can kind of get over this so we can get the economy back running. Uh, I think Ver- that was the other thing I noticed in Vermont. Business seemed to be booming. People were in places you were able to dine in if you chose to. I don't choose to because I don't want to be around that. I have a, um, I have a three-year-old son and I kind of like the old people that I uh, hang around with that are my family, that are my clients, and that are my friends. So I really don't want to put them and expose them to something that might hurt them overall. But I was, I was very, very surprised that uh, business was doing very well in Vermont. There were a lot of out-of-state plates and, you know, it's great on them. I believe this is the true way forward. Um, you know, basically better testing, rapid turnaround of testing, contact tracing, and just people who will be compliant so that we can crush this and get back to business as usual, which would be great because it, let's be honest, it's boring sitting in your house. So I know most of you may be kind of COVIDed out. Uh, you know, it's the only thing we hear about on the news, on TV, when we're, uh, you know, reading on social media or when we are just kind of searching for news. But I do want to cover something that I don't think gets a lot of coverage. It's beginning to get a lot of coverage now. And that's the long-term problems for people who come down with COVID-19. And this is a very underappreciated problem. Uh, I think the perception most people have is that you get COVID-19 and two weeks later you're better. Or conversely, you die in four weeks. But there is a a substantial middle ground of people who have what uh, Dr. Fauci and and other um, people other people that kind of deal with infectious disease describe as post-viral syndrome. And it seems to affect a significant number of people. You know, there's actually a specific 
type I want to discuss, but you know, the, the estimates are that some people upwards of 20% might actually have permanent damage to their heart. Uh, somewhere around 70% may have long-term scarring in the lungs, fibrosis, and there are also other potential problems that have to do with the central nervous system, which I'm going to talk to you about in a little bit, which could maybe give you a, an idea about why people care so much about this, you know, coronavirus and why they may be freaking out about it. Um, but there's a significant portion of people as well who have symptoms that last greater than three months. And what's really interesting is that they're not the same symptoms with everybody. Uh, some people may have cardiovascular symptoms. Some people may have pulmonary symptoms. Some people ha may have regular in inflammatory. Uh, some people may have neurological symptoms. And, and they present differently between the individual. So one of these kind of clusters of symptoms is very similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, where people are getting fatigue, brain fog, body aches, difficulty breathing, and exercise intolerance. And what's really weird about this is that it presents differently. You can get COVID-19, have it completely go away, and then a month later it kind of comes back and you're experiencing you know, some of these clusters of symptoms. You can have this just pretty much every day um, where you, know, you feel good during certain parts of the day and then other parts of the day you feel it like you got run over by a truck. And additionally, you can also have a couple of good days in a row and then you can feel like crap the rest of the week. So it really isn't consistent and, and you know, we're really beginning to look at this you know, post-viral syndrome or post-COVID syndrome. And what I found is I found a really interesting private Facebook group, which I'm going to do a blog on and uh, also a podcast on. I'm gonna um, interview the, the woman who started it. She has, this, has had this post-viral syndrome and she's using the book to gather data, which is really cool uh, if you, you know, I'm, when we speak to her, she can determine, uh, decide if you know she wants a whole bunch of people going in there and messing up her group. But what's really interesting is this private Facebook group when I joined had about 50,000 members in it. It's up to 80,000 now. Again, this is July 21st. So this doesn't seem to be that rare. Now this got on my radar because um, my cousin, who's around 36 years old, is dealing with this exact problem. She, otherwise healthy, not obese, She's a uh, dental hygienist, so that's how she got it, uh, was, you know, working on somebody's teeth, and that's, you know, she came down with the virus, and, you know, her first set of symptoms, she, this took her down really hard. She had fever for a good month, and, you know, her symptoms were pulmonary. She had problems breathing, which is not surprising. She had asthma, uh, and very light asthma, but, it, but, you know, she exercises, and then it started to go away, and I, you know, I follow her on Facebook. Obviously, she's my cousin, and she's like, yes, I, you know, my fever went down. It went down again, and, you know, just one more day, and then it would just pop right back up, but the interesting thing with this is her pulmonary symptoms kind of you know, kind of dissipated, but then she started having problems with clotting. You know, you've probably heard about this becoming a problem with people. So she's still going through this. I mean, she's got to be pushing somewhere around 100 days. So she shared an article and, you know, I just said, hey, you know, this is kind of interesting. Let's go check this out. And so I went to this group and I was just flipping through and I'm like, you know, it's pretty crazy to me. This seems very similar to like Lyme disease, except it's a Lyme disease that people can pass to one another without knowing they're passing to one another. And it just had some crazy parallels to me because a lot of the people I follow in the, you know, alternative health or natural health um, 
kind of kind of you know, circles. They're kind of poo-pooing this, but these are the same kind of people that think, you know, we really need to do something about Lyme, Lyme disease, but apparently they don't think um, that it's, you know, that this COVID-19 thing's a big deal. But I mean, if, if this turns out to be true and 20% of the people who get COVID-19 have something very similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, you're talking on the order of, you know, well over 600,000 people, which is more than three times the number of people who get Lyme disease in a year. So I just think it's very, very odd. Um, I hate wearing a mask. I don't like wearing a mask. It's very uncomfortable. Um, I hate not going to the beach. I, I don't go to the beach because my son won't social distance and people are animals and there are a lot of people who are just not kind of abiding by the rules. So I don't go to the beach. I would like this to be over just as much as anyone else. It just seems odd to me that, you know, people who care so much about health, and I think that that's a lot of people in this, you know, uh, you know, paleo or, or, you know, just general uh, alternative wellness field, just kind of put the poo-poo on this. Uh, another thing it kind of brings to mind is 5G. Uh, I don't think we should release 5G until we know if it's affecting a lot of people, but I don't think 5G will negatively affect the same number of people as thus far have been affected by COVID-19. I mean, it's 3 million people. 5G has been out in Hong Kong for a long time. If it was damaging that much of the population, we would know about it. Um, and but at the same time, I don't think we should release something that we don't, you know, and, and you know, have it negatively affect a million people in much the same way that I don't think we should really ignore Corona, you know, COVID-19, SARS. Uh, Cove 2. I really don't think we should avoid, you know, ignore this because we simply just don't know what's happening with it. What's going on? This, when they say novel coronavirus, that's exactly what they mean. It's novel. We don't understand it. And since we don't understand it, we're going to be wrong a lot and we're going to make a lot of decisions that seem like overreactions. But at the end of the day, if you're someone with, you know, if you're someone with chronic fatigue syndrome and the rest of the world could simply just put on a mask and stay away for a little bit, I'm sure most people would kind of be very happy. As far as I'm concerned, uh, I'm not concerned about it negatively affecting me that much, but I really don't want to give it to somebody that I care about. So one interesting thing that some people may not be aware of with regards to coronaviruses in general, you may have seen that you know some people are suffering neurological issues. The smell issue is a neurological issue. People may not know, know this, but what people may not be aware of is why some of these um, neurological symptoms are happening. And what's really interesting is that there is a known effect in coronaviruses, so not just this coronaviruses, a lot of coronaviruses, that when the immune system forms T cells to kind of fight the virus, there is actually cross reactivity between the T cells that are meant to fight the coronavirus and myelin, which is, a, you know, the sheath that covers our nerves and kind of helps, you know, you know conduct nerve impulses uh, more rapidly and more effectively. So they've done a study, uh, this was uh, 2007 or so, and they looked into uh, people with multiple sclerosis and if they had these cross-reactive cells, wasn't a ton, I think it was around 5% of the people they tested, but they did actually have T cells that cross-reacted with myelin, meaning that potentially having the coronavirus is what caused their multiple sclerosis. So uh, that's why I think it's really important that since we don't know anything about this, that we really want to not get it until they study it pretty well. At least that's my stance. 
Um, again, I think I'll probably be all right, but I don't want to, you know, cause, you know, unreparable damage to uh, somebody that I know or love. So there's just a lot we don't know about COVID-19 and it is frustrating. Don't wear a mask, wear a mask. Hey, turns out the reason we told you not to wear a mask was we didn't want you to take them for the healthcare workers. You know, there's a, you know, it's kind of a slimy thing, uh, you know, albeit, you know, noble because we want our healthcare workers, uh, we want our healthcare workers to be safe, but you know, when you get three, four months down the road and we find out, hey, that was a lie and you were kind of manipulating us, people are not going to trust people who do that. So this is why it seems like the measures are so extreme and why things seem seemingly change from day to day. But you may not know that you get this. And would you want to be one of these people that gets it, doesn't know it, and then three months later, all of a sudden you're getting symptoms, much like if you were exposed to Lyme disease, uh, the reactivation of Lyme. And then you get into a position where your resilience is down, either, you know, because you're not sleeping well or, you know, your immune system is is hampered for one reason or another. So I just think we really want to play this day to day. Um, I think we're getting more comfortable with the things that we need to do to kind of knock it down based off of positivity in the places. So um, it's just really important that um, we don't assume that we know that this is just something that is going to make us sick for two weeks and then we're fine or kill us. There's a middle ground and you really don't want yourself or someone you care about to be stuck into that middle ground. Um, you know, and there's kind of to illustrate this, there's this meme going around that people are, I mean, people, and I used to do this, romanticize kind of the Paleolithic era and kind of like the lifestyle factors, you know, related to evolutionary medicine. So there's like these memes going around that say, if you get proper light exposure, you have adequate vitamin D, you get plenty of physical activity, you avoid sugar and processed foods, eat lots of vegetables, you sleep well, avoid stress, manage your blood sugar levels, that your immune system will take care of it. Well, the people sharing this meme must have missed the memo that infectious disease is a leading cause of death in hunter-gatherers. And we're not just talking about getting a cut on your arm and uh, you know losing your arm. We're talking about gastrointestinal diseases and respiratory diseases. So don't romanticize the Paleolithic. People died in the Paleolithic and they got plenty of sunlight. They slept well, they exercised, um, they avoided sugar and processed foods and, and you know, they didn't really have to worry about their car bills and stuff like that. So just because you do all that stuff doesn't necessarily mean you're protected, obviously, because infectious disease is one of the things that will more than likely take down people living as a hunter-gatherer. So that's basic spiel on the uh, COVID-19. I swear I'm done for that now. Other than the fact that uh, what I'm about to talk to you, my self-care routine is kind of the whole goal of it is to build resilience. And while I was in Vermont, I kind of knocked down my resilience. So I'm going to use the measures that I used to identify that, you know, I kind of beat myself up to turn it around, do some things I haven't been doing for a while, and just to make sure I'm doing those. So finally, I'd like to discuss my little self-care project that I hope to undertake for the next month or so. Uh, the reasoning behind this is I just got back from vacation. As I mentioned, I was up in Vermont for 11 days. I spent most of those days drinking beer and eating foods that I don't typically eat every day. And the outcome of that was some pretty big changes and some variables that I think are important. For one, I gained 10 pounds. And generally, when I gained that amount of weight, I see some negative effects uh, in terms of the way I feel, the way I sleep. 
Um, what else? My heart rate generally changes. My heart rate variability goes down. And interestingly enough, that is precisely what I saw. I saw some pretty robust changes in the way that I, I feel. I noticed that my resting heart rate increased pretty substantially. I'll share that information on, on the blog for this, but just to kind of go over what those changes were, I saw an increase in 10 pounds. I went from my standard 182 to 192 pounds. My sleep score while I was on vacation, well, it wasn't terrible. It was a sleep score of 79 using a Fitbit. And prior to that, it was in the 85 range. And now having come back, it's in the 86 range. Also, since I've been kind of much tighter on my diet, I've already lost five of the pounds that I put on. I've seen a pretty substantial change in my resting heart rate. Before I left, it was around 53, and it got up to 59 while I was in Vermont, and it's already about halfway back down at 55. I've been practicing my self-care stuff for the past, uh, actually, since Sunday. So um, I, I have seen some improvements before I left, the week before I left for Vermont. My heart rate variability, uh, the Root mean square of successive differences. The week average was 49.8. This, oddly enough for me, takes a little while to come around. And it is now 45.1. I actually had two of my lowest readings in a long time on Monday and Tuesday after I got back. And today, being Wednesday, it actually shot up to 57.1, which is about a 50% increase and around where I like to keep it. So I am seeing benefits. I do think that has a lot to do with the weight loss. Generally, when I get up pretty substantially above what my normal weight is, which is again, 181, 182, uh, when I get five to 10 pounds above that, I begin to see kind of a, a decrease in my heart rate variability as stress is taking on my body. But conversely, as I dip below 181 or I enter calorie restriction when I'm at 181, my heart rate variability de uh, tends to decline as well. So that's simply because our body tries to kind of maintain our weight and when we try to you know either decrease it or we increase it too much because we're on vacation we see a drop in heart rate variability which generally leads to an increase in resting heart rate and a decrease in sleep quality so those are going to be some important measures that i, I pay attention to the my goals for my self-care project i want to build resilience which is you know can't really measure that uh, but I also want to drop the 10 pounds, again, halfway there. Improve my aerobic capacity, which based on my Fitbit is around 52 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute. And a decrease my inflammation. One of the things I noticed when I was in Vermont was my plantar fasciitis. My left foot started to come back and uh, that I had had for close to six months. And then it went away for a few months prior to COVID began running, everything was going great. And then I went up there and kind of spoiled the whole thing. So essentially I need a vacation from my vacation. So I'm going to spend the next month working on that. Now, what things do I want to see change? I want to see my resting heart rate increase, my heart rate variability increase as well. Um, I want to see my weight get down to again, 181-ish. I want to see increases in my VO2 max, which is my aerobic capacity, and I want to see improvements in my sleep score. Now, what am I going to do to attain this? I'm going to, first off, I'm going to have, I mean, use my Fitbit. I, I get so much use out of this, and I do feel that many people would 
if they kind of measured some of the variables I did. I'm going to work on getting my activity points, which is a measure of uh, weekly, moderate to vig vigorous physical activity, up to 300 activity points per week. I'm gonna shoot for my steps to be over 15,000 per day. Three meals with no snacks in between, which I generally follow anyway, but I've kind of slid away from. I'm going to use a compliance spreadsheet that I use. Uh, I use it in the Stop Leaky Gut Challenge, and I also have a, a, a blank one for people in the Circadian Retraining Program. I find these very valuable to implement new things or to implement old things that I'm becoming less effective at doing. It, it's a simple Excel spreadsheet. You just plug in which variables you want the ones you want to measure on the daily, the ones you want to measure on the weekly. And it just it kind of computes a score for me from week to week so I can see, A, if I'm being compliant with the things I want to be doing, and B, what that compliance does. And for example, you know, if my score is, you know, a 300 is a max score, if I'm really close to that 300, am I seeing changes? Because if I'm not seeing the changes that I'd like to see, then I've picked some bad variables. So some of the things I'll be doing that are, you know, I typically do, I'm not going to measure. Uh, for example, I'm going to attempt to maintain my vitamin D over 15 nanograms per milliliter using the D-Minder app. I've been really good at using that, and it's currently 54, but I don't always use it, so you know it's probably a little higher than that. I hope to add in some breathing exercises at some point, but for now, I'm just going to focus on breathing properly when I do my runs, when I perform my exercise and do my plyometrics. I'm going to make a point of foam, doing my foam rolling and stretching program at least three times a week. I kind of let that one get away from me way before uh, COVID even happened. Strength training five times a week versus the three times a week I normally do. Follow other circadian stuff that I generally follow but kind of let slip through. And then I'm going to have a few productivity-related productivity goals. Now, the, the stuff, the, the exercise stuff, for those of you in the circadian retraining program, all the exercise stuff, the foam rolling stuff, uh, and the strength training stuff, that's all, I'm all going to be following the, the stuff that's in the modules for that. So if you want to see what I'll be doing, you just go into the OneDrive. But primarily, I'm going to be doing things just, I'm going to be doing the strength training and the cardio to get those activity points that I mentioned to get the steps that I want and the strength training just to kind of see a little change in my body. I'm going to add in a few different exercises that are in that are in the one drive that I just haven't been doing. And as I mentioned, the impetus for this entire thing was my vacation, adding the 10 pounds, the return of the plantar fasciitis and the wonky sleep on vacation. Uh, my sleep schedule definitely did shift. And part of that's attributed to wearing the glasses. The other thing can be attributed, uh, blue blocking glasses, mind you. Um, other stuff that can be attributed to that is completely shifting my sleep schedule because the, the lighting schedule up in Vermont is completely different. The sun rises around 5.30 and it sets around 9. Now that I'm in New Jersey, sun's rising closer to 6 and it sets... Around 8, 8.30, so definitely getting different sun exposure. Uh, I currently just want to recharge, so I'm going to be sticking to my principles a lot more. Uh, while I was on vacation, I maintained good, ac good activity, and I got to bed at a reasonable time, but, you know, I feel adding the compliance checklist and just, you know, sticking to my guns and following a set program is the kind of recharge I want. So that's what I'll be doing over the next few weeks. 
I'll be discussing some of the things I'm doing. I'm probably going to implement some breathing exercises that I'll discuss as well. But you know, basically the whole point of this is just to feel better. The other thing that I haven't mentioned that I probably should mention is that I do plan on taking a break from alcohol for a full week and when I'm reserved full two weeks because uh, I only drink on the weekends normally uh, but then when I am resuming following the alcohol guidelines that I've set forth in the circadian retraining program because I've definitely been breaking those and that can have a really bad effect on your metabolism and your circadian rhythms by effect negatively affecting the NAD levels in the liver and increasing inflammation throughout the body another thing I'll be doing is consuming chamomile tea um, daily in an effort to kind of inhibit the enzyme that I mentioned in the previous podcast, CD38, to lower inflammation. I've, again, I've been doing that since uh, doing all this stuff. It's now Wednesday. I've been doing it all since Sunday, with Monday being my official start to this whole thing. And I've been hitting all the numbers I've been trying to hit. And so we'll just see how that goes. I'll definitely be giving updates next podcast. We'll, we may cover that a little bit and then go on to some other stuff I'd like to cover. So that about covers it. Can't wait to kind of bring you guys along uh, for a ride with me doing this. I'm actually announcing this because I want to be held accountable. And a lot of the times, if I'm not held accountable, uh, even if I'm doing the compliance checklist that I have, I just kind of let things fall by the wayside. And I don't think that that's going to happen now that I'm using you guys to keep myself accountable. So thanks a lot um, for the... uh, you know, the effort and for the motivation, guys. That's another Hack Your Gut podcast episode in the books. Thank you all for listening. I hope you all stay tuned for the next couple of weeks. I will be covering some coronavirus stuff. There's actually quite a bit uh, that has come out since, you know, I started restarted the podcast, stuff that it's, it's a, you feel a little more comfortable with discussing because the data is a little more clear. I also ha- have um, Karen Bischoff, who I mentioned, I hadn't mentioned her name. Uh, I'll have a blog coming out in the next couple of weeks about her and her experience with, uh, with post-viral illness in COVID-19. There's a group of people called long haulers who have, uh, you know, gotten you know, been infected with SARS-CoV-2, had severe or even moderate COVID-19 symptoms, but, you know, here they are, you know, four, five, six months in, and they're still having problems. And she runs a group called the Survivor Corps, which is a group for uh, long haulers. And it's really interesting what she's doing. She's doing polls in the group. She's asking people about what symptoms they're experiencing, what they're doing, and people are telling their stories. And this is just a really, really interesting uh, group that she's running. I want to tell you a little bit about her story and a little bit about Survivor Corps. That is a podcast that will be in the pipeline within the next couple of weeks. Hope you guys enjoy this one and I know you will enjoy that one. Thank you very much. Take care.